morning, everybody. We had a couple of, couple of races this morning coming up to the praise and prayer mic, which was kind of cool. <laughs> Should make that a regular, regular thing. Uh, we're making our way through uh, Ecclesiastes, so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Pastor Brent was here last week, and he left us off in verse 9, so we're going to be picking up today uh, in verse 10. And for those of you that have been around, I'm sure you're noticing kind of a thread through Ecclesiastes, uh, just heavy on the sovereignty of God. Uh, heavy on just the meaningless of life, trying to live life apart from God. Uh, Solomon keeps using this phrase, uh, I've seen you know, this thing or that thing uh, under the sun. And what he means by that, that phrase under the sun, is uh, our futile effort in trying to live life uh, apart from God. Uh, living in God's world, but not living according to God's ways. Today we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 10, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 7, verse 14. So we've got a little bit of a, a chunk today. But picking up in chapter 6, verse 10, says, Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it's known to man, or it's known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Now, Ecclesiastes has its, its fair amount of kind of depressing uh, sections, and, and this is going to sound a little depressing today, but hopefully by the time we get to the end, uh, we're going to see uh, that uh, because we do attempt to live in God's world according to God's ways, that, that it isn't in fact depressing for the follower of Christ. But for the person who doesn't follow Christ, for the non-Christian, um, Solomon just gets to the heart of the matter and says there's not much to life, there's not much to enjoy, uh, there's not much meaning, there's not much purpose when we try to live apart from God. And so in our passage today, he starts off by reminding us that whatever has come to be has already been named and it's known what man is and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. He's telling us right out of the gate, reminding us that, that God is bigger than you and God is bigger than me and he's stronger than you and he's stronger than me. But how much of our lives do we spend trying to dispute with God? How much of our lives, even sometimes as followers of Christ, how much of our lives do we spend trying to tell God how to run the world better? Think about the way that you pray. What kind of things do you pray for? If you're like me, uh, sometimes you might have a pretty long list to give to God, to say, God, here's, here's my, my suggestions for you. Would you please fix this? Would you please change that? Would you please do this differently? Would you make this other thing go away? I, I got all kinds of suggestions for God, and honestly, I think some of them are pretty good. <laughs> but, but the reality is that Solomon reminds us is that there's nothing new under the sun. We, we've heard that already uh, through Ecclesiastes. Whatever has already been named, it's already come to be. In other words, God from, from the very beginning of, of whatever the beginning is, right? God, God is infinite. He's always existed. But from the beginning of time and history, as we know it, God has a plan that's unfolding. From Genesis 1.1, where it says, In the beginning, God... He's had a plan that has been unfolding. God was not surprised when sin came into the world, when the first people that he created rebelled against him. He was not surprised. He's had this plan that's been unfolding and will continue to unfold. We, we know how the story ends, right? Genesis to Revelation, the plan is unfolding. So we see the sovereignty of God here. And Solomon reminds us that we as finite human beings are not able to dispute with one who is stronger than us. And he's not talking about someone who's smarter, bigger, faster, necessarily. He's talking about God, that we can't dispute with the one stronger than us, meaning God. God is powerful. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? Sometimes I can ramble on when I talk to God. I feel like sometimes the more that I talk, maybe I can convince God to my way of thinking. Do you ever feel that way? Sometimes our, our prayers have lots of words because we think that we're trying to convince God of, of how we see things. 
And Solomon is telling us that's vanity. There's no advantage to it. God knows what we need, the Bible tells us, before we even ask or think it. We're not telling God anything new. We're not giving him new information with which to run the world. We're not giving God new information with which to make decisions. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life with which passes like a shadow. If it comes down to me knowing what's best and God knowing what's best, who, who wins that one? God knows what we need. Again, before we even ask it or think it. I mean, I was thinking this week, our, we did a table talk this Thursday on the Holy Spirit, and then this kind of idea came up in that table talk, but I've been kind of stewing on it all week. There are some times for me as I, as I get older, as, as I mature in Christ, as I mature just as a human being, where my prayers are, are less and less telling God how to run the world. I still do that a fair amount. But, but often, like sometimes my prayers will just be, God, help. And not that I need just a little bit of help, but like I, I can't do this without your help. Some, sometimes my prayers just simply help because I don't always know what's best for me. I don't always know what I need. I'm a pretty smart guy. I like to think that I know what I need. I think I like to like to think I'd be able to kind of read a situation and, and know the way forward. But but I'm realizing I don't I don't always know. And, and maybe I don't know nearly as much as I think I do. And so more and more my prayers to God are just please help. Help in the way that you think that I need help, not the way that I think I need help. And, and it's more of a you know, like I think of a little kid trying to get up on the counter to reach the cookie jar, and it's like, hey, I need a little, can you give me a boost? I need a little bit of help here. That's not the kind of help that I need. Years ago, I've probably shared this story before, but years ago at a youth retreat that I was leading, we had um, one of our adult youth leaders almost drown in a lake in front of the entire youth group. He was in a canoe, and the canoe tipped over, and, and he couldn't swim, and he wasn't wearing a life jacket, and he was a big guy. And we just hear this, you know, help, you know, from the middle of this lake. And we see arms flailing and, and people jumped into the water and had to rescue him. And, and that image is forever burned in my mind. And when I ask God for help, like that's the kind of help that I'm thinking of. Like I, I'm, I'm not going to make it without your help, God. God knows what's best, not you and not me. Solomon reminds us that the days of our lives are few. We might have 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, 90 maybe if we're lucky, 100 for some. Even, even those, those upper years, 90 and 100 years, is just it's this much on the blip of the radar of eternity, right? Our, our, our days are few compared to eternity. And we're told here that that life, however long it may be or short it may be, it passes like a shadow. And Solomon again says, the end of verse 12, who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? So there's that phrase, under the sun again. So apart from God, who can tell a man what will be after him, a man or a woman, a person, a human being? Right, for those of us that are followers of Christ, we have a hope in this life. We have a hope that one day Christ will return. We have a hope that his resurrection is true. The Apostle Paul tells us that if Christ didn't, wasn't raised from the dead, then our religion, like we've, we've bought into a lie. And we're the most pitiable of all people if Christ was not raised from the dead. And so the, the great hope that we have as Christians is that the gospel is true, that Christ defeated sin, that Christ conquered death, that Christ now sits at the right hand of God. And we, we have that hope and that, that as he's given us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing his return that one day he'll redeem all things. One day he'll make all of the wrong things right. One day he'll take away the pain. One day he'll wipe away every tear. One day, we'll be face-to-face -face with our Creator. That's the hope of the Christian. Solomon says, who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? In other words, apart from God, what hope is there? What hope is there? All throughout Ecclesiastes, we've been reminded that maybe the best thing that we can take from life, if we don't follow Christ, 
is that maybe we'll have a job that we'll enjoy and we can find some kind of fulfillment from that. And, th and then we die and that's, that's all there is. That's kind of a depressing thought, isn't it? Because most of us don't find a whole lot of fulfillment from our jobs, do we? The daily grind. Who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? This makes me think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul is, he says this, and starting in verse 20, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so we have kind of this irony of, of who God is, this irony of, of how God works in the world. Paul asked the question, where is the one who's wise? Right? I'd like to think that I'm wise, just like you would probably like to think that you're wise. And, and maybe God has given us some wisdom as it pertains to the ways of the world. But at the end of the day, the foolishness of God is wiser than you and me. And the weakness of God is stronger than you and me. So where Solomon leaves us is what, what hope do we have apart from God? Where the Apostle Paul picks up is that in God's wisdom, in God's strength, and in the irony of those things. Think, think about how, how is it that Christ came into the world? He, he didn't show up on a, on a horse with a sword and a shield ready to take names. That day's coming. But that's not how he initially arrived on scene. He arrived on scene as a baby. The most weak and feeble way that you could imagine, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, shows up on this earth as a baby who needed to be fed and clothed and changed. And this is the Savior of the world. right? He had to grow up just like you and I had to grow up. Had parents just like you and I had parents. Had siblings like you and I had siblings. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And there, there's an irony in how all of this has unfolded. Some people look for a sign, the, Paul sa the, the Apostle Paul says. Give, give me a sign, and then I'll believe. Or convince me intellectually, and then I'll believe. But Paul just says, we, we simply preach Christ and him crucified, and that's the hope that we give to the world. God, God doesn't tend to do his saving work in us on an intellectual level, although our intellect is involved. A.W. Tozer talks about that, that we don't come to God purely on an intellectual level. It doesn't work that way. We can't read enough. We can't learn enough. We can't become smart enough to become convinced intellectually that God is who he says he is and that he does what he says he did. It doesn't work that way. There aren't enough signs and wonders that would happen that would cause us to ultimately be convinced of who God is. The message of the gospel, that, that Jesus came in a weak and feeble way, that Jesus for a time, subjected himself to the punishment of those whom he created. That he came with grace and with love and with mercy. The, the irony of that, the message of the gospel, the Apostle Paul says, this is what we preach and this is where hope is found. What, what an amazing thing it is that we can live this life and have have hope. I grew up in the church. You guys know that. I've shared that before. For me, like I feel like I've had just this hope of who Christ is my whole life. 
And I thank God for that. I don't know what it is to live a life without hope in Christ, without hope that the gospel is true. Maybe you know, maybe some of you came to faith, not necessarily as a kid, but as adults, and maybe you've lived life without, I, I just can't imagine living life without this hope. And so the kind of the depressingness of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon is making this point that, that life apart from Christ is hopeless, it, it is. It is. We, we have a hope in who Christ is. He's bigger than us. He's stronger than us. He's smarter than us. He's more powerful than us. He's everywhere. He knows everything all of the time. Nothing, the Bible says, happens apart from God's watchful eye anywhere in the entirety of the universe. Yet, somehow, he cares about us. He cares about the things that are involved in our lives. He cares that we would come to know him. So much so that he's gone to such great lengths as sending his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's hope. That's hope right there. So we move into chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. We're going to see some more irony here. Solomon says, A good name is better than a precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and all the living will lay heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Solomon gives us these series of statements that at first maybe don't make a whole lot of sense. A good name is better than a precious ointment. In other words, you could look good, you could smell good, you could feel good, but what's better than that is to have a good name. It's better to be thought well of by strangers and outsiders than it is to look and feel good, right? He says that the day of death is better than the day of birth. That kind of gives us pause right there. The day of death, why would he say that? Why would he say the day of death is better than the day of birth? One commentary that I read had an interesting idea about this. And the idea was that, that death is a preacher, the idea of death preaches to us, right? We've all been to funerals. We've all been to memorial services. And if you're like me, assuming that you are, when you go to a, a memorial service, um, whether you know, knew the person well or whether it's more of just you know, like a member of your family, an extended family that maybe you weren't close to, uh, so maybe it's not such a time of mourning, whatever the case may be, we, we think about life and death when we go to funerals, don't we? We think about it. <clears throat> Years ago, I had a friend. His name was Dave. And uh, Dave was, was the most kind, humble, uh, generous guy I think that I've ever known in my life. He was in his, uh, I think, late 40s, maybe early 50s. And <clears throat> he ran a hot dog cart out in front of a Home Depot down in Redding, California. And... He catered events on the side. The guy cooked the best tri-tip I've ever had in my life. He had the secret recipe that he wouldn't share with anybody. And like I said, he, he's the kind of guy that would just give the shirt off of his back to you right now if you had a need. And he was, he was not a rich guy at all, even though he had his own business. Um, you know, he, he, he wasn't rolling in it. And one day, out in front of Home Depot, he was selling hot dogs, and one of the employees came out to buy lunch from him and notice that Dave's speech was slurred. And it seemed like he was maybe having a stroke in that moment. So this employee said, we need to get you to the hospital. Took him to the hospital, confirmed that Dave had a stroke and lost uh, movement on the left side of his body. He was in the hospital, I think, for a couple of weeks and uh, miraculously got his movement back on the left side of his body and was able to talk again. And it was kind of like nothing ever happened. They released him from the hospital, and he went home for a couple of days, and, and one day he just passed out and died after getting home from the hospital. Tragic story. Had a loving wife, a couple of uh, uh, teenage sons, um, and they were devastated by the death of their dad. 
And he was a guy that was well-known in the community, well-respected, well-liked. People grieved the death of Dave. And, and the, this family, were they were our friends, and we grieved with them. And so we put together this memorial service for Dave. And the Home Depot in Reading that day went down to a skeleton crew so that the employees of Home Depot could come to this. I mean, the church was just packed. And it was a lot of like college-age students who worked at the Home Depot that were impacted by Dave. And there was probably 300 people in this little church that just filled it. And as they often do at memorial services, there came the open mic time where if anybody had you know, a memory that they wanted to share uh, about Dave, they could come to the mic and do it. And this first kid gets up. He was probably in his mid-20s. And he just said, you know, I was talking to Dave one day a couple of years ago and just telling him how, how much I wanted to go to college and I couldn't afford it. And Dave put me through community college. And his family had no idea that Dave had put this kid through community college. Another kid gets up and said, yeah, one day my car broke down in the parking lot. The transmission blew. Dave bought me a transmission. And when I went to pay him back, he wouldn't let me. Another kid got up and said, yeah, I was going you know, through a, a rough time financially, and, and Dave let me eat at his hot dog stand for a month. Wouldn't, wouldn't let me pay him back. These kinds of stories went on for over an hour. I've never seen anything like this in my life. I've never went to a funeral and walked away thinking that was really cool, except for that day. It was incredible that the testimony of Dave, this was probably 15 years ago, and I still remember it very vividly, and it, it, has, it inspired me to be at this memorial service, even though it was tragic that Dave passed away and tragic circumstances how he passed away. This guy left a legacy. He left a legacy of humility. He left a legacy of generosity. He left a legacy as, as a follower of Christ. His death preached to me, and his death today still preaches to me, and hopefully things like that preach to you. Solomon says, better is the day of death than the day of birth. We all get excited about babies, right? Pastor David just had a baby in his family, and what a cool thing that is, an exciting thing that is. I don't think Solomon's knocking babies here and saying that babies aren't a good thing. They're a great thing. But I don't think we're necessarily taking stock of our life at the maternity ward. Whereas when we go to funerals and we remember people in their death, even what Craig shared about Jim this morning, what, what a cool thing to share and a cool legacy that he left behind. I hope that preaches to us about what it is to be a follower of Christ. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. I think I've said this many times before too, but if life were always easy, if it were always fun, if it were always enjoyable, if things always went our way, if God answered every prayer that we prayed the way that we wanted him to answer it, I don't know that we would pray all that much. It's not in the easy times that we tend to look to God and ask for help. It's not in the good days that we stop and pray and say, God, I need your help today. Everything's going my way, but I need your help. We don't, we don't do that. It's when things get hard. It's when we get devastating news. It's when tragedy happens that we stop and pray and ask God for him to intervene. And, and I think this is kind of what Solomon might be getting at here. I don't think he's saying that it's just better if everybody walks around with sad faces in mourning all of the time. I don't think he's saying that at all. But I think he's getting at that during our difficulties, especially as Christians, we have a hope that God hears us. We have a hope that God is working on our behalf. Sorrow, he says, is better than laughter, for by sadness of heart, or for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. How would we know happiness if we didn't know sadness? How would we know what's good if we didn't know what was bad? Again, I don't think Solomon is saying that, you know, he's wishing just bad things would happen to us all of the time. But I think he's giving us a reminder that during the difficult times, during the bad times, during the tragedies, we, we can look to the things that are good and we can have hope in that. 
The heart of the wise, he says, is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or in the house of feasting. Right? If all we're searching for in this life is happiness, I was talking to somebody recently that told me that, like they just want to be happy. They're living life in a way to do whatever makes them happy, which no, noble ambition, right? Who of us doesn't want to be happy? We all want to be happy. But we don't find happiness by chasing happiness. Right? How much happiness is enough? Just a little bit more than what I have now. Right? We find happiness by learning to be content with where God has us in life. We find happiness in service to others. We find happiness by looking outside of ourselves. And when Solomon talks about the heart of the wise being in the house of the, of the morning, I think he's reminding us that in our mourning, in our sadness, in our difficulties, in our tragedies, that, that we look to God. That we look to God knowing, believing, trusting, hoping that he's working on our behalf because he loves us. Solomon goes on to say, It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. There are times in my life, and probably yours too, where I need to hear the rebuke of the wise. I think of a friend about a year ago who gently rebuked me. And this, uh, someone older than me, someone who I look up to and someone who I respect. Someone who's raised his kids into adulthood. Someone who's been married for a long time. Respectable person. And it wasn't until after he left my house that I realized, you know what? I just got rebuked in the most gentle way ever. And I didn't ask for it. And as I thought about it, like I didn't even want it in the moment. But later I realized, you know what? I needed that. I needed that. And because this person cared enough for me to rebuke me, I appreciate that. And Solomon says, that's better. It's better that you have people in your life like that than that you spend all of your time listening to the song of fools. People that just always affirm you no matter what. Matter of fact, Solomon says that's vanity to live in that way. When you're just looking for constant affirmation, people telling you that, that you look good, that you did a good job, that your life is together, that's all that we're looking for. Solomon says that's vanity. And then he gives this analogy, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. Right? Think about when you build a campfire. Right, and you, you, you get your kindling, you get your kindling going and you, you light the fire. That kindling doesn't last long before it's gone, right? So the big pieces of wood last a while, but that kindling, it crackles for a little while, it gets your fire going, but, it, but it's, it's gone pretty quickly. That's what Solomon likens this to, that it's all vanity. So we see kind of this, this irony in these statements. Better is the day of death than the day of birth. Better, better is mourning than feasting. And it reminds me of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus gives us kind of this list of ironies. Matthew 5, 2 to 12. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus, as he's preaching this sermon, gives this series of ironic statements. Nobody wants to be poor in spirit, but Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And why is it that the poor in spirit are blessed? Because theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. So poor in spirit now, kingdom of heaven later. Blessed are those who mourn. So blessed are those who are sad now, for they shall be comforted. That comfort is going to come again. God's going to wipe away every tear and take away everything that caused us pain and right all of the wrongs. He's going to redeem all of the things that seem irredeemable in this world. That's to come. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Ask any leadership guru today who's going to inherit the earth, and they're not going to say the meek. There are no books in the bookstore in Barnes & Noble written on how to be a meek leader. How to be a, those, nobody writes those books. The books that are selling off the shelf like there's no tomorrow are the books that tell you how to be strong, how to be powerful, how to be self-confident. Right? The books that fall off the shelves are, are books that, that tell you how to achieve success and how to make money and, and how to have everything that you want in this life. Those are the books that, that can't stay on the shelves, but Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Meek now, inherit the earth later, the hope of the Christian. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst who likes to be hungry and who likes to be thirsty? Like we don't. So the second I get hungry, I'm going to the kitchen. Matter of fact, sometimes last night I snacked on some Cheez-Its. I wasn't even hungry. I was preempting my hunger, thinking I'm gonna be hungry in a little bit. I'm gonna have a snack now, right? That's 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 what we do. But Jesus says, "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst not for food, but for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied." Why do we eat? We eat because we need it, right? We need sustenance. But at the end of the day, I'm not eating things just because it gives me the protein that I need, right? I, I eat because I enjoy it and because I'm satisfied. My aunt and uncle live in Wyoming and they hunt big game. And, and once in a while, they'll just send a package of, package of, of their big game you know, out here to some of the family in Oregon. Last night for dinner, I had an elk steak for my aunt and uncle, and I was satisfied, right? Put some flour in it, some garlic. So, I mean, oh, it was good. I was satisfied. I ate that because it satisfied me, but, but Jesus tells us that when we hunger and thirst not for food, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's the thing that's going to satisfy us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Again, books on being merciful are not flying off the bookshelf. The books that fly off of the bookshelf are how to be strong and how to be assertive and how to make a name for yourself, how to be powerful, how to take what's yours. I used to work with a guy years ago who, he wouldn't ever tell you, have a great day. His catchphrase was, make it a great day. In other words, it's within your power, like make it a great day. Make your day what you want it to be. Be assertive. Jesus says, be merciful. Be merciful to people. Withhold from people the due punishment that they deserve. Right? If someone wrongs you, they deserve to be wronged back because of what they did to you, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, be merciful because you will receive mercy. In a sense, we have received mercy as followers of Christ, but we also will receive mercy when the day of judgment comes. Blessed are the pure in heart. Our, our, our world doesn't place a whole lot of value on purity, does it? Our world places a value on kind of being wise in the ways of the world. We might call that being street smart. Right? Maybe be a good person, but, but be aware that like bad things happen in the world and, and know enough so that you know how to deal with them. Jesus says, blessed, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. And again, our world might not put a whole lot of value on the peacemakers. Our world puts a value, again, on strength and, and power and, and dominating. But Jesus said the peacemakers will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Think about our brothers and sisters we've been reading about in Afghanistan who are being persecuted right now for righteousness' sake. Those Christians who are being sought out simply because they're Christians. 
We grieve for that and we pray for that. But Jesus reminds us that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are reviled and persecuted and have evil falsely uttered against them on their account. Blessed are those. He's and not only blessed, he says rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted. Be Rejoice and be glad when you're reviled. Rejoice and be glad when false accusations come against you. Your reward is not here and now. What you're dealing with here and now might be pretty difficult. But your reward is in heaven. And you're not the first people to be persecuted. People who have come before you have been persecuted. So we have all these ironies. Solomon doesn't give us a lot of hope in his ironies, but as we look to Jesus, we have some hope in these difficult things of life, in our mourning and in our sadness and in our persecution. Solomon goes on in verse 7 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and an advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So Solomon addresses a few things here. He addresses our greed. Surely oppression drives the wise to madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. We live in a world full of oppression. The powerful pick on the weak. And it seems like there's nothing we can do to stop it. Right? The, the moral, our, our moral trajectory is not heading in the right direction. And so we see more oppression and we see more corruption. I read a lot of news, and I read the news yesterday, and it was just one of those days where, like, I just kind of wallowed in just some of the bad things happening in the world. I don't, I don't do that very often, right? A lot of times I'll read through the news, and it just causes me to pray to God to help us in, in our kind of downward spiral. But yesterday, like, I just got mad. I was home alone most of the day. My wife was gone, and, and so I just kind of had the house to myself, and I'm just getting mad as I'm reading the news, and I wanted to set it down, but it was like a bad car wreck. I couldn't. I just kept reading about just tragedies happening, and it just made me sad. And it kind of made me in a little bit of a funky mood for a while. Like, this oppression, it drove me nuts yesterday. It really did. Solomon is talking to us about the condition of humanity and the corruption that's in the world. He's talking to us about our anger. He says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning, but a patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. He gives us this admonition, don't be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Right? We all get angry. We all have these things that push our buttons, right? Things that push my buttons might be different than the things that push your buttons, but we all have these things that, that just can kind of set us off. And Solomon says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning. In other words, like the end of a thing is better because we don't have to focus on it and be angry about it anymore once it's over. But he tells us, don't, don't be quick to become angry. Because there's nothing good that comes from anger. God has a righteous anger. And sometimes like we invoke that thinking, well, I can be angry about this injustice in the world because, because God would righteously be angry about it. But I can tell you for me, almost never, maybe definitively never is my anger righteousness. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever been righteously angry because I'm a sinner. You probably have never been righteously angry. If you have, you're a better person than I am. And Solomon tells us, don't, don't be quick to be angry because it's foolish. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. He addresses our trust or the lack thereof. Say not, he says, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. And I hear a lot of people today, even me, even, even I've thought this and probably uttered it, why aren't things like they were 20 years ago? Right? We see the moral decline of our country, and it should grieve us all. It should grieve us all, especially those who follow Christ. 
But Solomon tells us that, that looking back and saying, I, I wish for the old days, I wish things were the way they were under, under a different presidency even. Solomon is saying that's not, you're, like we're asking the wrong question. We're pointing out the wrong thing in that. And what that really points to is a lack of trust in God. When we look back and say, I wish things were the way that they used to be. And the reason that's a lack of trust in God is that, that do we believe that the here and now that God is present? Do we believe that God is sovereign over now? Do we believe that God is sovereign over who sits in the White House? Do we believe that God is sovereign over the things happening on the other side of the world? Do we believe that God is sovereign over the things that are happening in our life? And looking back, not necessarily in a nostalgic way, but looking back saying, I wish, I just wish things were like they used to be, can demonstrate a lack of trust in God for the present. When we long so much for the past that, that it doesn't cause us to realize God is here and God is present. Solomon addresses the finite nature of humanity. He says that wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. What I don't think he's talking about here is the wisdom, like Proverbs talks about the beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I don't, I don't think Solomon's talking about that kind of wisdom. I think he's talking about kind of a, a humanly wisdom, like the, you know, a knowledge that we've learned how to navigate life, right? I think he's talking about that kind of wisdom. Think about someone who gets an inheritance, maybe a, a you know 18-year-old kid who, who just doesn't have any experience in life and inherits a whole bunch of money, like, like they're probably going to blow it and they're probably going to mismanage it, right? Because they don't have the wisdom or life experience to handle something versus someone who maybe at 50 years old inherits a large sum of money. That person is probably going to handle it better right, than, than the 18-year-old kid. So he says, wisdom or experience, we might say, is an advantage to those who see the sun. Everybody sees the sun, right? So everybody can benefit from having wisdom and knowledge and experience. The protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And I don't think Solomon here is necessarily advocating for money as much as he's saying that, it, that if you have enough wisdom to kind of have your, your storehouses a little bit, you save for retirement, right? You set a little bit aside for a rainy day, right? You're able to fix the car when it breaks down. Those are good things. But at the end of the day, as human beings, we're finite, right? Like we have a beginning and we have an end. God has no beginning and no end. We have a beginning and we have an end. And so this human condition that Solomon is talking about is kind of bleak at best. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks about the human condition and he reminds us that, that we all are sinners. We all fall short. He reminds us that as the creation, that, that we have taken our eyes off of the Creator and we've made a bigger deal of created things, or we, we stopped looking at the infinite and we've made a big deal out of finite things, so much so that it has corrupted us. In Romans 1.28 the Apostle Paul says that since they, meaning humanity, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree... Those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So Paul paints this really bleak picture of the human condition. It's actually worse than the picture that Solomon has just painted for us of the human condition. Again, bleak, living this life in this world apart from God. Solomon goes on to close out our section in verses 13 and 14 to say, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything.
that will be after him. So we see here the infinity of God. We've just seen kind of the finite nature of man, the bleak nature of man. Here we see the, the infinite nature of God, the sovereign nature of God. Solomon tells us that God has, in fact, made things crooked. Not because God made a mistake, but by his design, he has made things crooked. He has made things such in this world that we can't fix it. We can't make straight what he's made crooked. And Solomon says, consider that. That might be a tough pill for some of us to think about, to swallow. God has made things crooked. That's a big statement. That's a, it's not, Solomon's not saying that God has, has authored evil, right? That's another discussion for another time. He's not saying that God has authored sin. But he's saying that God has made this world in such a way that, that people are corrupt. Humans are corrupt because of our sin nature, like we've brought the corruption. We've brought the corruption, and God in his sovereignty has allowed that to happen to work for the good of those who follow Christ the glory of God so that one day, when that day comes where he's going to redeem everything, he is going to straighten the crooked things. But you and I, we're powerless. We can't straighten the things that God has made or allowed to be crooked. Solomon closes out by saying, the day of prosperity, be joyful, right? Enjoy, enjoy it when things are good, when life is going your way, enjoy it. But in the day of adversity, when things aren't going your way, when things aren't so good, he says, consider this. God has made one as well as the other. When life isn't going our way, Solomon is saying, God has not abandoned us. Sometimes we ask, where are you, God? Sometimes we ask, why do things have to be this way? And Solomon is saying that God, he's made the good days and the bad. God is there when things are going your way, and he's there when things aren't going your way. Consider that. Consider it the next tragedy that you go through, the next difficulty that you go through. Consider God is sovereign even over that. 2020 and 2021 have been difficult years for us. Not just because of the pandemic, but things caused by the pandemic. Right? We, we've had difficulties. And God, God has not abandoned us in our difficulty. I want to close with a verse from Colossians chapter 1 to give us some hope in this. Colossians 1, 15 to 23. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, Paul says, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." What hope do we have here? Solomon gives us kind of this bleak picture of life under the sun, life apart from God. Not a lot of good things happening, not a lot of redeemable qualities about life apart from God. But Paul reminds us with what we just read in Colossians that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and his mission is to redeem all things. And he can redeem all things because everything was created for him and by him. He's over everything. He controls everything. He rules everything. He establishes everything that happens everywhere all of the time. And for those of us that were once alienated and hostile and far from him, he's redeeming us and he's giving us an opportunity as he calls us into relationship with him to be redeemed from the hostility to be brought back from the alienation, to be redeemed from our 
hostility and from our evil, that we would be reconciled to our Creator. So Solomon reminds us of just how bad things are apart from Christ, but the New Testament writers remind us that because of who Christ is and what Christ has done, that we don't have to look at this bleak existence and not have any hope. So if you're here today as as a follower of Christ, be encouraged of what he's done for you. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, today is the day to follow Christ so that you can experience hope, so that you can experience redemption, so that you can experience freedom. And on the heels of that, we get to celebrate communion today. We get to be reminded of who Christ is and what he's done as we take communion, as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, as we remember his body broken for us, as we remember what he's done on the cross, as we remember his blood being shed so that we would come to know him. That's why we celebrate communion. and That's why it's a special thing that we get to do on occasion. And so be reminded of the truth of the gospel with this picture that we get to see with communion today. This isn't just bread and just a cup, right? This is representative of who Christ is and what Christ has done and his redemptive work on the cross so that we would come to know him. So as we sing this last song, uh, feel free just on your own to come up and grab the, the bread, grab the cup, go back to your seat and take communion during this last song. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for today that you love us. We're thankful uh, for all that you've done for us. We're thankful uh, just that we have hope in this life. We're reminded by Solomon that there's not really any hope that this life offers apart from you. And so, God, we're grateful to be here today where we can proclaim your goodness, where we can proclaim the truth of the gospel, where we can visibly see the truth of the gospel in communion. And we're thankful that It's the message of the gospel that brings us hope. And so, God, may we be reminded today of the hope that we have in Christ, and we ask it in your name. Amen.